Well, good morning, everybody. It's good, really good to see you this morning. I'm happy to be with you on this not-so-hot uh, day. It's, it feels a little bit cooler up here. That's kind of nice, actually. We're, again, we're in Exodus 24. And uh, as I prayed, I, you know, my good friend Tim Keller died last week, May 19th. <laughs> he wasn't my friend because we had met or because uh, he knew me, but he was my friend because we were, we were conversation partners through his books and his sermons, through his writings and his sermons. And one of the things uh, Tim Keller, who is a pastor in New York City at Re- Redeemer Presbyterian Church, one of the things he couldn't get over that is that his name was written in heaven, in the book of life. And now he's with his Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? But I want, I want to ask a question. Why couldn't he get over that? Well, one of the reasons is because he knew how great of a sinner he was. He knew he was a great sinner and that he didn't deserve to be in God's presence. Here's one of his, his many quotes. The gospel says, you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. It's actually worse than you imagine. Yet, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared to hope. So how? How can that be? How can a sinful, flawed person like Tim Keller or like Doug Payne or you fill in the gap with your name, how can a sinful, flawed person, more sinful than you ever dared imagine, stand in the presence of a perfectly holy and righteous God and live? How can you dwell in God's presence and live? That's the question we're going to ask this morning. And I think Exodus 24 answers it for us. And we're going to we're going to look at it through four points. Invitation, bloodshed, acceptance, and justice. Invitation, bloodshed, acceptance, and justice. How can you, maybe you don't believe in Christianity. That's okay. You're welcome here. We're so thankful that you're here. But maybe, maybe you don't believe that there is a God or that the, the Christian God is, is not who you want to serve. I just want to ask this question of all of us. How can you or any of us dwell in God's presence and live? How is it possible if the God of the Bible is who he says he is? How can we dwell in his presence and live? Just a little background about Exodus. Exodus is about God's work of delivering Israel from Egypt, from their slavery in Egypt. They had been in Egypt. They had been rescued from famine in Egypt. And they had been there for 400 plus years. And in that time, the Egyptian people turned them into slaves. And God said, enough, let my people go. And then he sent a mediator, Moses, to help let them go, to show his strong hand that even even Pharaoh might see and the nations might see how strong and mighty the name of God is as he delivers them out of that land through the 10 plagues and then through the Red Sea and on the other side they come free, a free people. He delivers them. 
Then he provides for them miraculously through the, the manna that comes down from heaven and through the water from the rock and, and God's providing for his people. And, and they, like us, rebel against him time and again. They, the bread's not enough. The water's not enough. They want certainty. And so God brings them to the, the base of Mount Sinai to give them his law, to enter into a covenant with them, to enter into a relationship with them. And he says, here's my law. Here's how I want you to live. Will you live in response to the grace I've given you? The grace of rescuing you, rescuing you out of your slavery and, and bringing you on into the promised land. And so we're here at Mount Sinai where God gives his law. He's entering into a covenant and we're between Egypt and the promised land. And during their wilderness wanderings, their, their 40 years in the wilderness, God wants to dwell with them. But how can it happen? How can an unholy people dwell with a holy God? Well, the first thing we see in verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 24 is that the only way we can dwell with God and live is if he invites us. Hear God's word to us. Exodus 24, then he, that's the Lord, said to Moses, come up to the Lord. You and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, or Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. The first way that, the first thing we see, if we're going to dwell in God's holy presence, if we're going to live before him in, in if we're going to dwell before him in love and live, is that he must invite us. God, the point here is that God decides who and when should come up to him. Moses was called up. And he was called up specifically for the people. This was meant for the good of Israel. He was to come up so that Israel might also dwell with God. They needed a mediator. And we know in, in 1 Timothy 2, 5, that there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And Moses was only a pointer to someone greater than him, but God called Moses up. Moses wasn't going up for himself alone. Moses and the 73 went up for others. They went up to the mountain, and then partway up, the, a portion of them stopped, and Moses was called further on. He was called to mediate. And we see in chapter 19, verse 6, that this is what God was making his people into, a kingdom of priests. A priest is a mediator. A priest mediates between God and man, and they were to mediate God's grace and God's love and God's kindness and justice to the world. Were they going to do that? God is calling them into a relationship with them so that they might do that. They might receive grace and then be mediators of grace, priests of grace, kingdom of priests to the nations. But the necessity of a mediation means bad news, right? We all know it, right? If, you said, if, if someone came up to you after church and said, hey, I'm in mediation, you'd be like, uh-oh, <laughs> what's going on? Uh, maybe a divorce, or, or maybe you're suing somebody, but mediation means bad news. And friends, the bad news is, for all of us, God is too holy to approach, to be approached by sinful people. 
We can't come with our own righteousness. We must only come with someone else's righteousness. We not, cannot come on our own accord unless our sin has been dealt with, unless you've been invited. And the first step in having a relationship with God is to understand your unworthiness and your sinfulness. And in spite of that, all of that, you've been invited. You've been called to come in to his presence with thanksgiving in your hearts. Uh, but friends, nobody approaches God on their own. I mean, you, you can think of this in illustration, right? No one, ha- just think if you tried to approach the president on your own, what would happen? Right? Without an invitation, without an escort, if you tried to approach the president, you'd have the secret service surrounding you and arresting you uh, right away. Well, it's the same thing with, with God. You cannot come on your own. You cannot come with your own righteousness because you don't have any, and neither do I. None of us do. We must come on the righteousness of someone else. You must come invited. The, the next thing that we see in the text is that in verses three through eight is that we must come through bloodshed. Moses came and, and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. God had given them, uh, and now Moses is telling the people, and then he's going to repeat them because we all need repetition in order to learn. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And that's the right response. We will enter into a relationship with God. He has rescued us. We want to obey them, obey him, obey his rules. And yet they spoke more than they knew. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, that was last week, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is God's word. That seems weird, right? Is it just me? Or like, could you imagine me being up here and throwing blood out on you as a symbol? It seems weird. It seems like, as you read, I was reading it with two, two guys this, this week, and I was like, hey, what stands out to you? And, and, and one of them was like, well, the blood being thrown on people, <laughs> that kind of stands out to me. But I, I want to I say that it actually was not weird to people in that culture or in other cultures. And unless we're cultural snobs, right, we, we want to be careful about saying, well, they were just wrong. So the sealing of a covenant was always done by the killing of an animal, some sort of blood had to be shed, and, and not just in, in Israel's religious um, dealings, but also in, in, in other places uh, in the world. That's how serious they took a promise, an oath, a covenant. It would be, you know, it's, it's what you think of when you, when you sign a paper, 
You know, uh, when you sign your mortgage papers before you buy a house, it's pretty serious, but it's, no one has to die in order for you to buy the house. So the greater the purchase, the more serious the, uh, the sign of the covenant. A covenant is a, an agreement between two parties. Often marriages are viewed as covenants. They're agreements between two parties. And in the Bible, the covenant is an agreement between a great king, God, the king of the universe, and those who are his, those whom he has basically conquered, those, a, a, a nation that he has, he, he, has, he has come to take over, but take over for good. And he's entering into a covenant with them, and a king and a, and a conquered, uh, conquered people would enter into a covenant, and an animal would be slain. And you can see in Genesis 15, when God does this with Abraham, he slays the animal, and he cuts it in two, and he places it, and, and this would, would have been done when a covenant agreement was, was, was happening. And, and usually the two parties would walk through the covenant, would, would walk through the, the cutting of the covenant, the animal, and they would say together, if I break the terms of the covenant, may what happened to this animal happen to me. But with Abraham, God put Abraham to sleep, and he walked through the animal himself saying, if I break the terms of this covenant, may judgment be on me. He did it himself unilaterally. And, and now we see God is bringing them into this covenant. He's, he's sprinkling the blood against the altar, meaning they were forgiven. God's sacrifice of this animal had been accepted and their sins were atoned for. And then he, and he, and he put the blood on the people saying, listen, your sins are atoned for. Now enter into a relationship with me. But it's a formal contract. How seriously do we take contracts today? Now, this isn't me bemoaning the culture. This is just me, like, thinking about myself. When's the last time you entered a contract? Well, think about this. When's the last time you downloaded an app on your phone? You entered into a contract. There's no signing with blood. There's actually no signing. There's just a check in the box, right? Bling! You just entered into a covenant. And, and as you accept the terms of that covenant, how many of you have read the terms of that covenant? I mean, they could have asked for your first child, right? You would not even know. I wouldn't know. I'm the same way. I, it's like, bling, it doesn't matter. I, I'm getting this app because I need it right now. So, however, if we slow down and think about, an app is not that serious, right? Uh, they're not going to ask for much. They just, they just want to cover their behinds so they don't get sued. But as we go further, you think about a mortgage I'm going to sign. It's more serious. I'm going to read more of the terms so I know, right? Well, well, with this, a relationship with God is the most serious thing that you can enter into. The God of the universe, the king of glory, the king of everything, who, who, who makes people alive and, and has the power to, to allow them to die or, or even to kill them. This is God. And you're entering, we, the people of Israel, entering into a covenant with him. And, and the sign that they must be forgiven was the death of an animal. And the friends, this goes all the way back. It's not explicit in Genesis, but this goes all the way back to Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned against God and ate of the fruit of the tree of the garden, their, the judgment was they get kicked out of the garden. But they realized that they were naked, and in order to clothe themselves, 
They took leaves and tried to clothe themselves, but that wasn't enough. Animals had to be killed. This, this is how serious sin is. And I, I understand, friends, our, our culture, we do have, an, you know, our, our current American culture, it's hard for us to understand why such a little thing like lying or eating a piece of fruit would demand eternal judgment from God or death. But not every culture has that problem with the Bible. That, and we need to ask ourselves, why do we have a problem with that? Well, why is that our problem with the Bible? The Bible not only says that God is just, but he must have justice and, and sin must be paid for. And what Sean read for us earlier, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness of sins. This is the way God set it up in the universe. Sinning, cosmic sin, is sin is cosmic rebellion. It's rebellion against the God of the universe. And so it's serious. So blood has to be shed. If you want to enter into the presence of God and live there in love, you must be invited and blood must be shed. You must be invited and blood must be shed. And, and third, we must be accepted. Verses 9 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The bad news is we can't approach God on our own. And yet we have evidence in this historical document that men approached God, actually saw him, and lived. How is that possible? Friends, it's, it's one thing to be invited, but it's another thing to be accepted. Have you ever been invited to a party, but once you arrived, you haven't felt accepted? That's just me. <laughs> I'm the only one. Okay, I'll have to think about that for a while. <laughs> I want you to come to my party, but I don't really want you there. I, I want to be looked good for inviting you, but I, once you got here, I'm just going to kind of give you the cold shoulder. That's, we've all experienced that, I think, in, in one way or the other, right? You're invited to church, come on in, and then you just get the cold shoulder. You sit alone. You, you know, um, the place of grace becomes a place of loneliness. Friends, uh, no one has seen God at any time and lived. That, that's part of what's going on here. But God is also so holy that sinners cannot look at him. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw God enthroned. The temple of his throne was just filled in his visions. And God was, the vision of God was mediated through these angelic wings. They, they covered him up so Isaiah wouldn't be consumed. But friends, these men saw the God of Israel. And Moses described it as seeing him and God didn't lay a hand on them. Why is that? In, in his description, he can't actually get past the ground that God is metaphorically standing on. 
Moses and the men, just, just the picture is they bow down. What they see of God is his glory through his feet. And even the ground that he stands on becomes this beautiful sapphire-like flooring that he's standing on. He's too beautiful for description. And they could sooner describe what God stood on than describe God himself. And though he is holy and though he is dangerous, he's, he's too dangerous to be in his presence, here they stood, or rather knelt, frightened and yet drawn in, frightened of his holiness, but drawn to his beauty. And he doesn't lay a hand on them, but he has a meal with them. Friends, a meal in, the, in that culture was a sign of acceptance, a sign of approval, this is why Jesus got in trouble for eating with tax collectors and, and sinners, for prostitutes and, and, and the like. Because you're basically saying, I receive you as a person. I love you. I, 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 what, we're in business together or we're family or, or the like. If you want to see God and live, you must be invited. There must also be a sacrifice and you must be accepted. So dear friends, let's just apply this to, to our church there's many ways that this can be applied, but how do, how do we show that we've been accepted by God? How, how, how do you show it? How do we show it in this church? Do, do people in our church feel accepted by those who say they're accepted by God? Are there people who sit alone in, in, in the chairs among us and, and never feel brought in? to our families or to our friend groups. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. What I'm saying is that acceptance of God pours out to others and it goes towards others and brings them in. And I know families that you have a hard time getting getting here and getting kids ready and getting them to sit down and sit through worship, but God wants us to bring other people in, the single people into 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 our row. It should be never be, it, our church should be known as a never alone Sunday. Nobody sits alone unless they want to. No, n- nobody is alone. Nobody has to go home after church without being invited for a meal. You're never alone. We're never alone because we've been accepted by God and therefore we can go out and accept other people and, and bring them in. One way that we might do this is just to arrive 10, 10 minutes early or five. I don't know it's too much for you guys, but like just to arrive a little bit early and look and look out and see, hey, who's alone? Who can I go talk to? Who I've been accepted by God and I want them to know that they can be accepted by God and by me. So we're never alone. We've been accepted because Just like these men, we have beheld God in his glory through his word, and we have not been slain. He didn't lay a hand on us, but he gave us a meal. In a few moments, we're going to be eating another meal that shows the exact same thing. God invited us into his presence, and because of his blood shed, that's what the cup represents, because of his body broken for us, we can eat and be accepted and accept one another. We have a meal. God is, not, God is not saying, hey, come to my party, but I don't really want you here. He's saying, come into my family. You are my son. I love you like I love Jesus. You are my daughter. I love you like I love Jesus. 
You've been accepted, even if you don't feel like it. You've been accepted by his love. You must be invited. Blood must be shed. You must be accepted, and there must be justice. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is God's word. The Bible says Moses was a friend of God. Spoke with God face to face. In order for the people to come near to God, a mediator, a priest, must face the devouring presence of God. Here's the problem. The, the blood of the bulls and the goats wasn't eternal. It had to happen multiple times a year, every year, time, multiple times a year. Bulls and goats and other animals' blood had to be shed in order for the people's sins to be atoned for so they could be accepted by God year after year. Another problem, Moses was not an eternal mediator. He was going to die one day, and, one, and soon he would. And though he went up, one day he would die, and he would not be able to mediate for the people. And those sacrifices were made. They would have to be made again. But friends... On the cross 2,000 years ago, a man, the God-man, Jesus, was both the perfect mediator and the perfect sacrifice. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and he came down. God came down, took on flesh to step in the gap between you and God. To, to stand there, to, to make a bridge so that you might cross over from death to life. So dear friend, your, your offerings, your, your good life, your giving, your Bible reading, your praying, your, your whatever you do, are never good enough. And maybe that's why you feel far from God. But that day on the cross was enough. For anyone who will come to him, for everyone who will come to him, he will in no wise cast out. His offering was enough. His good works were enough to offer it once forever. Why? Because he was both God and man. And forever he will be God and man, interceding for those who go to him. Maybe you're trying to get into his presence through your works and not his, and that's why you feel far from God. But he's invited you, dear friend, even on this day. You've heard the good news if you're not a Christian. You've been invited. Why don't you come? God's blood was shed for you. God-man, his blood was shed for you. Why don't you come? 
You've been accepted through Jesus Christ. If you will repent of your sins and trust in him, why don't you come? Dear Christian friend, why don't you come? Shake off your guilty fears. God owns you as his child. No longer fear. He has come as a priest to make you a priest. Shake off your guilty. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. Come. What is stopping you? You've been invited. Blood has been shed for you. Accepted. Justice has been done on that cross. Jesus went into the devouring fire on Mount Calvary, the devouring fire of God's wrath, and his wrath was propitiated. That means his wrath was satisfied for you. He is no longer angry at those who come to him by the blood of his son, the blood of the covenant. And as he enters in, he, you enter into the eternal plan of God. God eternally planned to do this before the world existed, before you were ever thought of, before time began, God planned to do this. And Charles Spurgeon imagined how this may have happened before everything was made. He envisions the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit making a covenant together. Now, this is meant to to assure you that you can come to him and that his sacrifice was enough, but you may only come through him and nothing else. The first to speak is the father who vows to save a people who will, he will love forever. He says, I, the most high Jehovah, do hereby give unto my only begotten and well-beloved son a people, countless beyond the number of the stars, who shall, by him, who shall be by him washed from sin, by him preserved and kept and led, and by him, that is Jesus, at last presented before my throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I covenant by oath and swear by myself because I can swear by no greater that these whom I now give to Christ shall be forever the objects of my eternal love. Them I will forgive through the merits of his blood. To these I will give a perfect righteousness. These will I adopt and make my sons and daughters, and these shall reign with me through Christ eternally. I just imagine. This is not exactly how it happened, but I imagine now the Father is done and the Holy Spirit's turn to speak. For his part, the Spirit promises to bring sinners to a knowledge of salvation, and the Spirit says, I hereby covenant that all whom the Father giveth the Son, I will in due time quicken. I'll I'll make them alive. I will show them their need of redemption. I will cut off from them a groundless hope and destroy their refuge of lies. I will bring them to the blood of sprinkling. I will give them faith whereby this blood shall be applied to them. I will work in them every grace. I will keep their faith alive. I will cleanse them and drive out all depravity, all sin from them. And they shall be presented at the last spotless and faultless. And finally, the time for the son comes to make his covenant commitment. And Spurgeon says, imagine it like this. My father, on my part I covenant that in the fullness of time I will become man. I will take upon myself the form and nature of the fallen race. I will live in their wretched world 
and for my people. I will keep the law perfectly. I will work out a spotless righteousness which shall be acceptable to the demands of thy just and holy law. In due time, I will bear the sins of all my people. Thou shalt exact their debts on me. The chastisement of their peace I will endure, and by my stripes they shall be healed. My Father, I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. I will magnify thy law and make it honorable. I will suffer all they ought to have suffered. I will endure the curse of thy law and all the vials of thy wrath shall be emptied and spent on my head. I will then rise again. I will ascend into heaven. I will intercede for them at the right hand and I will make myself responsible for every one of them that not one of those whom you have given me shall ever be lost. But I will bring all my sheep of whom by thy blood thou hast constituted me the shepherd. I will bring everyone safe to thee at last. How can you dwell in God's presence and live? You must be invited. Blood must be shed. You must be accepted. And justice must be met. And God did every one of those things for you. Oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy our lonely hearts, our lowly hearts. Own them all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice for sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased us. Make us yours forevermore. Friends, I'm going to give you a time to respond to God, and then we will ask for forgiveness of sins and be assured of the pardon we have in Jesus Christ. I'll give you a moment.